Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Well, obviously, uh, the level of integration of the Canadian and American uh, steel and aluminum industries uh, are well understood. Uh, ingots produced, uh, uh, aluminum ingots produced in Canada are used uh, by American manufacturers to, uh, uh, in a broad range of things. Uh, we uh, import uh, more steel uh, than the Americans uh, uh, ex- uh, import. Uh, <coughs> sorry, we uh, have a significant trade surplus. Uh, The Americans have a significant trade surplus with us on steel, uh, which which means uh, we buy steel from them, they buy steel from us. Well, there's our prime minister. And I I confess, the first time I heard that, I thought somebody had done some clever editing. Um, I didn't see the video. I didn't see the... I didn't see it. I heard it. And... Then after I heard it and verified that it was real, I didn't tweet anything about it for quite a number of hours, frankly, because I felt embarrassed. And for one of the rare times, I felt embarrassed for Justin Trudeau. I'm no fan of his, as you probably gathered. But uh, it was almost, I want to be careful what I say, but it was sad in a way to see how uncomfortable he clearly was once he started to slide off the rails. So we'll talk more about uh, Mr. Trudeau and what's going on with his political party and maybe his political future through the weekend. But uh, what is also of significant interest is national polling that was done by Ipsos polling for Global News And for the first time, I believe this is the first time since Mr. Trudeau was elected in 2015, he finds himself um, with his party in a position where Ipsos says if an election were held today, the liberals would lose to the conservatives. Sean Simpson joins us from uh, Ipsos polling. Sean, thank you very much for the time. Um, Has this public dissatisfaction with Trudeau been increasing incrementally, or has it been just an inch or two below the surface and ready to, to, to expand and explode? Hello, Sean? Okay, can we try... Let's try to get Sean back here. Let's see what happens. Sean, are you there? You need to call him back. So, uh, didn't this, isn't this the way it started last weekend? Well, you know, it's it's been a bit of a uh, a slow burn, I would say, for the for the Liberals. Their approval rating has dropped uh, fairly consistently over the last two and a half years, and yet vote support has been consistent. They consistently have been chosen by about forty percent of Canadians 
compared to the low 30s uh, for the Tories. This is the first time, as you noted, in the last uh, three years uh, or so, that the Conservatives have actually shot ahead of, of the Liberals. So I think they're, you know, given that there's been so much movement in, in such a short period of time, December was our last poll, the Liberals were still very far in the lead. This is the, the first time then, and all of a sudden, where things have changed, people are starting to change their minds about Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government. Yeah, and I thought I'd lost you there, but glad we didn't. The India trip, how much of a factor would that have been, do you think, in the, what you heard from Canadians? Yeah, I, I think it was significant. Um, we asked Canadians uh, what they thought of the India trip. We didn't tell them anything about it. We just said, based on what you've seen or heard about it, do you think it was beneficial for Canadian-Indian relations? Do you think it hurt? Do you think it was it was inconsequential? And on balance, uh, by far, there are more people who say, "I think it was bad for relations," uh, than than think it was think it was good. I mean, it got a lot of attention both here in Canada and abroad, and I think it was probably the first instance since our prime minister has been elected that the international media was shaking their head at our prime minister uh, and saying, you know, what, what, what was this costume parade all, all about? Really? Mm-hmm. And, and he, he looked a bit silly. Well, he did. And uh, I spoke with an Indian journalist last weekend who said that he would never wear uh, the clothing, or at least he wouldn't wear the clothing that the prime minister wore to his own wedding. And we know that Indian weddings are colorful events <laughs> that go on for some considerable period of time. Do you think, yeah. ha- has there been... Has the performance of uh, Mr. Shear helped him? Has, has his visibility in, increased or his, uh, his approval among Canadians increased or is what's happening to Justin Trudeau his own doing entirely? Oh, this has nothing to do with Shear. Uh, I mean, we haven't asked the question, but if you ask, quest, uh, ask the question to Canadians unaided, who's the leader of the Conservative Party, I suspect that you'd probably get more people saying Harper than Shear. Um, just yeah, because that's the name that comes top of mind. These are self-inflicted wounds by uh, the Liberal government and by Justin Trudeau. And if the trip to India wasn't enough, uh, he comes home and we're thinking, okay, we're going to get down to business and we're going to be talking economy and budgets. And and uh, Bill Morneau shows up in the in the House of Commons and delivers a budget uh, that. Does nothing to um, counteract or even discuss some of the challenges that we're facing with the United States and the NAFTA negotiations and these new uh, trade tariffs on steel, etc. Um, and it's received uh, with either apathy or negativity by Canadians. In fact, only nine percent of Canadians gave the budget thumbs up which means everybody else thinks it was sort of ho-hum or uh, a bad budget. And and things are starting to pile on. And then that interview with Justin Trudeau that you played in your introduction, you know, where he's trying to describe the the trade situation and steal with the Americans, he just sounds confused and exasperated. Mm-hmm. He does. Uh, so, so we start to understand why the mood 
is finally changing because these aren't the first gas of the government. Of course, they've been in power for three years and there's other things that come up. But this is the first time where they're starting to wear it and where Canadians are starting to say, oh, boy, uh, I mean, it, it, and it's ironic because the things that you like about somebody that you for which you elect them, which is is style, essentially, for this for this prime minister, start to become the things why you uh, dislike them, and that that style thing that that the Trudeau was so was so um, uh, uh, appealing uh, now becomes the reason why he's unappealing. What does he have to do to stop the slide? And after you observe him over a period of time, do you think that he has the ability? Uh, and the understanding of where he is, because sometimes these people are so protected by their their uh, assistants that they don't really know what's going on. I can't tell you how many premiers or prime ministers have said to me over the years, how am I doing? Well, why are you asking me? But they do, they ask. Do you think that he knows what's happening, that he understands the 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 trouble that's starting to brew for him, and does he have what it takes to turn it around? Well, this may be the first time that he actually realizes that, that uh, he's not coming across the way that he'd like to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that will be a, a very um, interesting uh, revelation for him. Because I think you're right. They, these people live in a bubble. They, they, don't quite, they don't quite get it. Now, in terms of turning it around, given the, the essential lack of op- opposition, I mean, Andrew Scheer is, is probably relatively unknown, uh, Singh is, is new, uh, the block is in uh, shambles, um, it's probably a temporary blip for the Liberals. Uh, what they need to do is, uh, even soon after the Liberals were elected, Justin Trudeau became Prime Minister, we asked a question uh, where we had Canadians agree or disagree that Trudeau was more style than substance, and, and most agreed. So right off the bat, they knew that you know policy and substance wasn't, wasn't his thing. Well, if the style wears off and starts to become annoying, then you need to be substance. And so he'll need to start to chew on some of these big policy um, concerns that people have, such as uh, dealing with Trump, dealing with trade, making sure that in the latter half of this economic cycle that we're still uh, building the economy and that we're, our budget, our fiscal situation is, is appropriate and that we're able to uh, wear a, a downturn that is likely to come at some point in the next couple of years. Yeah. Sean, I just, uh, when the budget came out, I uh, looked at it, and my first thought was missed opportunity. And uh, and I see what's going on now with Mr. Trudeau. And uh, I've just seen glimpses of this previously, the people kind comment. And and I knew they were getting sensitive about this because you knew what how Gerald Butts responded yeah. uh, on Twitter, uh, describing at least some people who thought that was funny or, or challenged Justin Trudeau on it as Nazis. So they clearly have an issue, and somebody's going to have to work with Mr. Trudeau, and he's going to have to work with himself so he understands what people expect from him. And you're right. It's, at some point, it's going to have to be substance, and we're getting close to 2019. 
We only just started in 2018, but for all intents and purposes, we are getting close to 2019. Yeah, well, we're coming into an election cycle, yeah, and the yeah. liberals will need to be a little less tone deaf. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 that's what the budget looked like. It was mm-hmm. tone deaf. It didn't yeah. talk about any of the things that really matter to people, like health care, like taxes, like jobs, like infrastructure. It was all, uh, you know, minor things and and small businesses and this and that, and sort of inside the beltway um, matters and not things that really matter yeah. to the, the average person. Yeah, so they, they'll need so. to smarten up. Thank you so much for the time. Great talking to you, Sean. Thanks, Roy. Take All care. the best. Sean Simpson from Ipsos Polling. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now, there's an election coming up on the 18th of March, and Vladimir Putin is running for re-election as president of Russia. I don't think there's much of a chance that he's not going to win. But Mr. Putin, just a couple of days ago, sort of played the tough guy as he unveiled, as it were, an entirely new generation of Russian nuclear weapons, which he says would completely neutralize any American defenses against nuclear weapons. He's also threatened that anyone who attacks any country that is allied or friendly to Russia is going to be uh, dealt with as though they had attacked Russia. So that's pretty tough talk from Vladimir Putin. Colonel Peter Mansour was an officer with the U.S. tank regiments in Germany. He faced Soviet troops in the 1980s. He was a brigade commander, 1st Armored Division, uh, was when it was deployed in Iraq, and later became the executive officer to General David Petraeus. He's the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour, thank you for the time. And what's your view of Vladimir Putin? What do you think of him? Well, he is, um, uh, you know, what he grew up to be. He was a KGB agent, um, a Russian nationalist, and uh, he overtly says that the uh, the worst thing that ever happened to Russia was the breakup of the Soviet Union. And so part of his policy is to try to uh, uh, regain uh, Russian stature as a as a global power, and um, he t- talks tough, and uh, the Russian people generally like him like that. They uh, he is uh, fairly popular, even though he is uh, robbing uh, the people of Russia of just about everything they own. Does he have what it takes? And I'm talking emotionally now. Before we talk about material that he may have available to him. Does he have what it takes to back up the boasts and the threats? Well, it's unclear. Um, clearly, Russia has great scientific talent, but it has fairly limited resources. Uh, its economy is one-fifteenth the size of the United States. Um, it is not a great power when it comes to uh, economic matters. But if you focus what uh, wherewithal it does have on uh, the creation of a new generation of weapons, then uh, I think it's eminently possible that um, Russia could develop these new nuclear weapons. The, um, the five that he mentioned in his recent speech, uh, it's pretty unclear whether they're actual weapons or if they're still in the design stage or if he's just bluffing. So what can these weapons supposedly do uh, to evade uh, anti-nuke uh, missiles from, from, from the U.S.? Well, precisely. This is what uh, Putin says. He uh, ordered the Russian uh, industrial uh, plants and, and industries and uh, defense industries to produce a generation of nuclear 
weapons and delivery systems that could evade U.S. anti-ballistic missile uh, weapons because the United States withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, a decade and a half ago under President George W. Bush. And this has rankled Russia ever since, even though it, it was intended to create missile defenses against uh, medium powers like uh, Iran and North Korea. But anyway, so uh, he claims that uh, they have now a nuclear cruise missile that can basically fly globally, uh, be programmed to evade missile defense systems, and um, it would fly at very low level, uh, but it wouldn't be limited by the amount of fuel it carried because it would have a nuclear reactor on board. This would be highly polluting as well. Uh, he didn't mention that. Um, there's a new intercontinental ballistic missile, and it would carry a new hypersonic glide vehicle, which could be autonomously targeted and flies at about five times the speed of sound uh, so fast that uh, anti-ballistic missiles couldn't catch it. And at the same time they have a new hypersonic cruise missile uh, same concept although it would be carried by an airplane close to its target but would fly again five times the speed of sound or so uh, so that anti-ballistic missiles couldn't hit it and finally he claims that they've developed a nuclear torpedo again it would have unlimited range because it would have a nuclear plant on board uh, and it would carry nuclear weapons to coastal targets um, and uh, would be very hard to detect. Are you buying any of that? I buy some of it. Uh, United States and other powers have been working on hypersonic glide vehicles for quite some time now. Um, the United States in the 1960s sort of dabbled with uh, creating missiles that had nuclear plants on board and then abandoned the project as, uh, as not very feasible. Uh, even with the um, improvements in, in nuclear technology, it's very hard to miniaturize a nuclear plant to the point where it can be put inside a, uh, a cruise missile, for instance. Um, and it would lack all the shielding that modern nuclear uh, reactors have, which me means it would emit lots and lots of radiation that would pollute anything it flies over. So this is a worldwide problem and not just a U.S.-Russia so problem if they've actually developed these devices. Should we be concerned? You know how it used to be during the Cold War. There would be talk about new weapons or new systems or new defenses, and we'd absorb it pretty much the same way we absorb in the middle of winter a forecast of three to four inches of snow. It's worth noting, but it's not going to be a big deal. In um, Canada, you call that Tuesday, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, in Ohio as well, I would add. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so um, you know... Provided that, that Russia can't uh, create a first strike capability, then I think this is a non-issue. Uh, but if these uh, new, new weapons uh, were uh, created such that Russia had the capability to destroy all U.S. land-based missiles and air bases um, uh, in a relatively short period of time, the only counter we would have then is, is whatever um, uh, nuclear submarines we would have at sea, uh, and the retaliation would have to be against uh, Russian cities, and that would lead to nuclear Armageddon. Mm -hmm. um, that is the danger, that this would give Russia some sort of unfair, no, I wouldn't say unfair, but a strategic edge um, in a nuclear conflict, uh, which is why the Trump administration is saying we're going to spend lots and lots of money in the next 20, 30 years to upgrade the U.S. nuclear arsenal so that we are not left behind 
in what appears to be, unfortunately, a new arms race. You know, uh, we're 16 days away or 15 days away from the Russian election, and I don't know how much of what was announced a few days ago is electioneering and how much of it, as you've said, is, uh, is, is potentially fact. But you faced Soviet troops when you were in West Germany. Uh, is, is it a more dangerous time today than it was during the Cold War? It was the Soviet Union versus essentially versus NATO or versus the United States. Now there's so many other small players involved globally with who knows what their potential is. Is, is, is the world more dangerous now than it would have been in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Um, it's more dangerous only in the sense that um, the chance of miscalculation is higher. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union back in the Cold War knew their adversary. Uh, they studied them intense, intently. They knew the signals that each other uh, would send and how to react to them, uh, with the exception of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was probably the, the most deadly uh, crisis the, the Earth has ever faced. Um, but by and large, it was a stable, uh, stable uh, adversarial conflict. Today we have all sorts of new actors, uh, potential nuclear actors like Iran, uh, actual nuclear actors like North Korea and Pakistan, and uh, the chance for miscalculation is really, really high. Now, having said that, uh, the Russia and these other powers, North Korea, Iran, and so forth, are a fraction, uh, uh, have a fraction of the power that the old Soviet Union had, um, and the United States and its NATO allies uh, would dwarf their capabilities in any sort of conflict, but uh, that doesn't mean it could still be very, very deadly and, and bloody. Yeah. The, the, the repeat thought that I've had is that the more of these regional conflicts that uh, show up and the more we hear people like, like uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea or you know, egomaniacs who want to be part of the big boys club and, and threaten with their nukes, the more we have these sorts of scenarios developing, the more the the uh, the picture becomes less focused. And I suppose that you just said that in a more elegant way than I was able to. Well, that's I think that's precisely the case. And we have a president now in Washington who uh, shoots from the hip, uh, is uh, erratic in his own way, and uh, it that that sort of miscalculation uh, verbally in, in uh, the diplomatic sphere could lead to some sort of military confrontation pretty quickly. These things sort of escalate rapidly. Um, and it, it is, I think, very dangerous today, these sorts of um, uh, smaller conflicts around the globe. But smaller is, is uh, a matter of, uh, you know, uh, judgment because North Korea has the capability to destroy entire cities with its nuclear uh, bombs. So these are still very, very deadly um, uh, engagements that the United States and its allies face around the world. Colonel yeah. Mansour, I have one more question for you. Uh, your book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War, and it's a tremendous read. Um, as you look at the Middle East now and what's happening there, uh, are you more or less optimistic about the situation coming under some level of control. There, there's some talk that President Trump might be preparing to uh, support statehood for Palestine. Uh, how do you view that, the, the region now? Well, there's, 
there's some progress. Uh, ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, was wiped off the map, and Iraq appears to be stabilizing at least temporarily, whether it can stabilize in the long haul and re-knit the, uh, the societal fabric back together remains to be seen, but, that, but that's good news. Um, Syria, unfortunately, has just entered a new stage of its civil war. ISIS is gone, but, but now you have regional and global actors vying for longer-term gains, and um, that is leading to new conflicts with Turkey invading northern Iraq, the Kurds fighting uh, the Turks and the Syrians, uh, Russia and Iran involved, as they have been for quite some time now, and the United States sort of caught up uh, in the middle of it all. Um, you know, with the Iran-Israel-Palestine uh, uh, conflict, it, um, it's pretty tough to see a, a way ahead there uh, diplomatically when each side really is uh, unwilling to recognize uh, the other. And uh, it's, it's very, very tough, I think, uh, at this point to to see an end game there. And anything that the U.S. administration does, like recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, seems to make matters worse, uh, not better. So uh, lots of different things happening in the Middle East, um, most of them uh, making the area more confusing, uh, but some progress as well, particularly in the war against ISIS. The book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War by Colonel Peter Mansour. Colonel, thank you very much for the time. It's always uh, informative and illuminating to talk to you. Thanks, Roy. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Colonel Peter Mansour. And the book is a great read. It really is. My journey with General David Petraeus and the remaking of the Iraq War. Surge. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about firearms now because that's been the discussion for globally for the last several weeks. And it's traveled into this country as well, with a farmer, a rancher in Alberta, being charged with three criminal charges now for discharging a firearm and hitting three alleged, one alleged invader. There were three of them, apparently, and hit one. So the, the rancher is now facing criminal charges for doing that. And so he had these individuals who trespassed on his property, and I'm sure that he felt threatened and so he reacted as he did. Let me just read this to you. The American conversation about gun control has moved into some unexpected territory. U.S. President Donald Trump signaled his sudden desire for a big, beautiful firearms bill that would expand background checks, seize weapons from the mentally unfit, further fortify schools, and restrict young people from owning certain guns. The live on camera blue-skying earned Trump a sharp rebuke from one of his staunchest supporters, the National Rifle Association, which called it good TV but bad policy. Meanwhile, the business community continues to push the debate with dollars and cents disclosures. Uh, the Vancouver-based Mountain Equipment Co-op chain bowed to consumer pressure. It announced that it will stop selling brands owned by Vista Outdoor, a U.S. company that makes guns and ammunition along with things like uh, sunglasses and uh, bushnell binoculars. And the move comes one day after U.S. retailer Dick Sporting Goods said it would stop selling assault rifles and halt gun and ammo sales to anyone under the age of 21. It goes on, the story does. And now in uh, Alberta, Edward Maurice is charged with aggravated assault, pointing a firearm, and careless use of a firearm. And uh, this is after he found his property um, invaded, allegedly, by three individuals. 
and the man who was shot has also been charged. He was taken to hospital with injuries uh, in his arm. So the question is, under what circumstances is it permissible under law in this country to use a firearm to defend yourself and defend your property and defend your loved ones? It's It's not a new debate, but it's certainly one that has seen the light of day again because of the Alberta situation, and some would argue that the Gerald Stanley case in Saskatchewan probably uh, was might have been similar. So Scott Newark joins us, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. He's an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, Scott, thank you for the time. Um, let me ask you this. When would you, when you were a Crown Attorney, when would you lay charges for use of a firearm to defend yourself in your home and defend your family, and when would you not, maybe? Well, first of all, um, I'm old enough that I have to go back and acknowledge that uh, in my days as a prosecutor, the determination of the charges was actually done by the police and it was reviewed by the Crown. I was actually, uh, probably more so than most, involved in discussions with the, uh, with the cops about you know, what charges should be laid and not. But basically, you're operating under a legal framework in terms of use of force of an individual um, who is uh, potentially going to be charged, but also is in the circumstances you're describing, somebody who was the victim of some kind of a, uh, either a physical assault potentially or a threat against uh, their property. Uh, You take a look at the facts that you have available and decide whether or not the provisions of the criminal code that have, as you co- quite correctly point out, these weren't uh, invented by the Justice Department last week. They have been around, the concepts of them have literally been around for centuries, of uh, people's uh, right as a citizen, as a law-abiding citizen, to defend themselves and persons under their protection and their property, and to use reasonable force. And that would include potential uh, lethal force, uh, including with the use of firearms. But you assess the facts as you know them, based on that legal context. And that's what literally, at, at some point, the Crown has to consider in all of these cases as to whether or not there's a, a case uh, that should uh, be preceded with, with criminal prosecution or that you're able to say, no, you know, this is not something we're going to prosecute. Is it, it's, it's very much a case-by-case determination. Role. Okay. Is it, uh, is it just my perception that whenever um, a Canadian homeowner uses a firearm, to protect him or herself or family or even property, and I know that's more of a nebulous scenario. Maybe it's just not allowed. It is. It is allowed. Okay. Yes. Is it my perception or is it true that almost regardless of the circumstance, the police or the Crown will, depending on the province, I think it is, will, will lay criminal charges against the homeowner? Well, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer because if they don't lay charges you don't necessarily know whether or not they actually had to make that determination it's really only when charges are laid that we're made aware of these things right so it's a difficult situation to uh, come up with a complete answer to that but without question the uh, when somebody you know uses uh, uh, force whether it's with a uh, gun or with some other kind of a weapon you know, quite appropriately, uh, law the, the public authorities decide whether or not that that use of force was reasonable in the circumstances, and they are guided by sections within the criminal code that, as I say, have roots in 
literally the foundations of our society. And sometimes I think people forget that. Um, you know, they think that this is just something that is casual. Uh, you know, the old saying, uh, my home is my castle. Um, the idea of that was that that reflected that people had the right to protect their own safety and their family safety and as well their property. And it was part of literally, in effect, the deal made between the crown and the people of uh, uh, England back in the um, 13th century with the creation of the king's courts. It was the notion that uh, the government, the crown, would agree to uh, be responsible for public protection and public prosecution of people that committed harmful acts against them, you know, so you don't take the law into your own hands. That's the reason why today when you look at what are described as case citations, the name of the case, it's Regina versus, you know, so-and-so. It's not all because the crimes happened in Saskatchewan. It's because of the fundamental political foundational belief that a crime against one person is a crime against all of society. So as you're seeing, I think, more and more of these incidents occurring, especially in rural areas, where the public is legitimately saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, like, I don't want to be in these circumstances where I feel compelled to use this kind of force, including with firearms, but I don't have a choice because the police aren't present or they aren't able to respond in time. And I think that is a big part of what's sort of prompting this debate, including, and several, both in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in British Columbia, I've been tracking this in the last little while, of where uh, public uh, officials uh, and uh, uh, rural homeowners are saying, you know, not only is this something that is on the increase in these kinds of crimes, but guess what? The people who are largely responsible for this are repeat offenders who are going through our revolving door criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Okay? They, yeah. And they quite correctly say, you know, why am I the one that has to deal with this? Yeah, I have to take a break, but I just sure. want you to think about this for a second, then give me your best thought on it. It was a big story nationally not long ago. Had to do with a man who retired in southwestern Ontario, bought himself a little plot of land that he was going to live uh, at for the rest of his life. Problems developed between him and his neighbor, and his neighbor apparently had had some history with whatever, uh, unsavory characters. And one night there were five individuals who attacked the retiree's home and firebombed it and shouted threats that he would die. Well, this individual was a former firearms instructor, small arms instructor, and he uh, got one of his pistols and he went out and he shot in the air and from, you know, I'm just vaguely, I'm just sort of remembering what happened. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was criminally, seriously, criminally charged. The Crown then incrementally, because he had great legal representation, uh, dropped the uh, charges one after another after another. But he was still financially on the hook for major legal bills and had been put through this this legal ringer after he had become the victim of a uh, firebombing of his home and, uh, and 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 shouted death threats. Anyway, you're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. Scott New York, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, adjunct professor at Simon. Fraser University, and also a, an expert in uh, security and terrorism issues with the federal and Ontario governments. Uh, Omar Cotter's lawyer appointed to a federal court judgeship. What's that about? 
You want to put on for me? John Norris and you were in competition for the position, Roy. But, oh, but, yeah, I understood that to be the case. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's funny, isn't it? How much attention this has got. I think that that's just an indication of how much of a uh, raw nerve the Omar Cotter payoff still is. Uh, you know, look, defense counsel get appointed as uh, judges all the time, uh, and uh, Mr. Norris. I mean, maybe he didn't uh, get a good enough cut off <laughs> the uh, contingency fees on the payout. Uh, from for Catter, but uh, you know, um, I don't know him. I don't know uh, his qualifications, uh, so I can't really comment on it. Defense lawyers represent who they represent. Uh, mm-hmm. Their job is to help their clients avoid uh, criminal responsibility for their actions. So the fact that he had sort of this notorious client. Is, should not be in any way a disqualification for him to assume a, that role. Yeah, and I agree with you, but there are times when the optics start to uh, annoy people or frustrate people or make them ask questions about, why is this happening now? Yeah, and I, I think that's what's taken place here, is that the, with all of the stuff with Omar Cotter being in the news, uh, I think this is getting more attention than it otherwise would have. So the other question that I want to ask you about is, and I know you've looked into this, Mr. Trudeau continues to insist and to blame India for Jaspal Atwal's presence there and suggests that uh, some nefarious Indian agency was responsible for this. The Indian government essentially is saying that's absolutely untrue and pointless. What do you make of this? Uh, You're right. I did a little bit of digging around uh, about this, and um, uh, it is just beyond ridiculous. Uh, In fact, uh, uh, I tracked down a, a couple of reporters, actually interviewed Atwal after he got uh, back, and uh, they checked his passport. And, Roy, uh, this guy had been allowed into India in January and June of 2017. In other words, the Indian government, he had previously been on a banned list. Mm-hmm. The Indian government, long before this trip was even planned, had lifted the visa requirements for it, or the, the ban on him, so that he was able to go to the country. So the notion that they somehow, you know, conspired to bring him there to somehow make uh, Trudeau look bad is ridiculous. I mean, frankly, I think, you know, the prime minister could have said, uh, well, geez, you know, we thought the Indian government didn't have a problem because they allowed him into the country. But, you know, uh, in retrospect, given his background, we probably should have included him at the uh, the events. But Having your national security advisor, who himself, he's a career bureaucrat, Daniel Jean, okay, come out, and it's been less than clear about exactly what it was that he said, but it's clearly contradictory to what it is that one of Trudeau's own MPs has said, that he was the one that got him the invitations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, For some reason, one, Trudeau just keeps doubling down on Yeah, that. on the one hand, you have Trudeau saying, well, it was my MP, and he's apologized to me for that, and then he says the Indian government was uh, responsible. It can't be both. And it's, it really is unprecedented, uh, or unusual at least, for the foreign government to come out and, you know, virtually call the prime minister's comments and assertions baseless. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, uh, and to make that's that kind of assertion, of and to make that kind of assertion when you're actually in the country you're visiting, when the prime minister of the country already kept you waiting for six and a half or seven days before he met with you, maybe not strategically brilliant. No, and I, I think this has just revealed that, in fact, this guy was somebody perceived to be an influencer in the Sikh community and that therefore they wanted to cozy up with him and bad judgment took over and maybe, I don't know, insufficient screening practices and when it got out somehow. And that's an interesting question as to who it is that leaked the fact or alerted the media that this guy was at these events or this one event in particular. 
uh, rather than simply say, you know what, we shouldn't have done this, they went into, you know, this ridiculous defense mode and got this senior official to come out and do this supposedly secret briefing, which has just blown up on them. Yep. Scott, thanks for the time today. Okay, Roy. Much appreciated. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta and uh, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, expert on issues of terrorism and uh, national security. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. It was about uh, 20 years ago when there was a trial underway for a a junior hockey coach, and uh, this hockey coach was a sexual abuser, a serial sexual abuser of kids who played on his team. And what really stunned and startled so many was that this hockey coach had so groomed not only the the kids who played for him, the ones he sexually abused, but he so groomed uh, one child's family that they allowed the hockey coach to sleep in the same bed with their son when he was, I think, 10 years of age. I've been reading a book uh, today. I received it um, uh, yesterday, and I've been reading it today, and I'm just absolutely struck by the uh, the honesty and the uh, the the challenge that the author has faced and is still facing. Here's what Sheldon Kennedy wrote about it. I am nobody is an honest, tragic account of child sexual abuse and a powerful resource for individuals struggling with recovery. Gilhooly clearly highlights the shortcomings of the Canadian justice system's approach. Hopefully, one day the punishment will fit the crime. Uh, Sheldon Kennedy, former NHL player and author of Why Didn't I Say Anything? And Theo Fleury writes, it takes a lot of courage to find your own voice. This book is all about courage and the willingness to move forward. Thank you, Greg, for your courage. May this process bring you peace. Theo Fleury, NHL Stanley Cup champion and author of Playing With Fire. Greg Gilhooly is a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. He's held senior positions in numerous corporations. He's also in demand as a public speaker and a media commentator. And his book, I Am Nobody, is uh, it, 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 sh- it actually shakes you while you're reading it. And just, just, in the, just the preface before I got to the actual content of the book, Greg, it, and thank you for joining us. It, it, speaks, it speaks to just the, the agony that you lived with and to a certain extent still live with. Well, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, everyone can conceptualize just how horrible, how heinous the physical acts of sexual abuse can be. But I think one of the things that uh, the broader public doesn't understand is that the abuse lingers far after the abuse, yeah. in, in an odd way of, of framing things. And it's as much the the pain and difficulty of dealing with the reality of having been abused that, that really destroys us on a, on a go-forward basis. Uh, Graham James picked you out. How did you come to play for him, um, and and how did it develop that he took advantage of you? Well, I I never actually played for Graham. I met Graham when I was fourteen years old. Graham was a larger than life figure in the Winnipeg hockey community. Graham was coaching a, a group of sixteen year old midget hockey players in in the part of Winnipeg that that I played in. Imagine Winnipeg uh, cut into quadrants. 
and uh, my part of Winnipeg being St. James. Graham coached the midget AAA team in in, Winnipeg, in St. James, and I played for the Bantam AAA team. We were my team was in the Midwest Regional Finals in Minneapolis, playing coincidentally enough another team from Winnipeg. And Graham had taken time off from his midget AAA coaching responsibilities to help our rival team. And we played our rival team and lost in the Midwest Regionals in, in Minneapolis. And as I skated off the ice, Graham was uh, near us. And I would have been the last 14-year-old to yell anything at an adult back then. But for whatever reason, I felt possessed to yell out to Graham and call him a traitor for having helped a, a different uh, organization beat us. You know, in, in the way that a 14-year-old would, would find uh, disloyalty and, and a, a Graham a, a traitor in minor hockey. And I immediately felt horrible for what I had just done, uh, went into the dressing room, got out of my stuff as quickly as I could, and uh, met up with Graham and apologized. And rather than finding him upset with me, he seemed to know a lot about me, said some very nice things about me. And so rather than having just lost the Midwestern Regional AAA Finals, I felt like I'd just gained a mentor. And uh, you were a good goaltender at 14 years of age, and so to have Graham James pay attention to you was, was significant. But then he he groomed you, and it came to foot massages, and from the foot massages, it went to more. And uh, you, you wrote in the preface about the first incident where he sexually assaulted you, and it left you in such incredible personal doubt. And it seems that that personal doubt that was, was sown, the seed that was sown that day, just got firmer and more firmly implanted in your psyche. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the interesting thing about sexual abusers is they, they tend not to immediately sexually abuse the victim. Graham was uh, phenomenally good at grooming me. I mean, he didn't lay a hand on me for months. We went back to Winnipeg, and we would meet and talk hockey theory, and he started training me off ice, and he regaled me with his, his theories of, of hockey and got to know me both as a as a, a hockey player and as a student, he, he was himself a substitute teacher in the school system uh, at the same time. But yeah, he he broke the physical barrier not by demanding that I expose myself to him, but merely he gave me his theory about what a hockey player was and how we fought with our heads and had power through the core that had to be transferred down through the legs. And then because uh, each skate had two thin uh, edges, the, the feet had to transfer all of that power down to the ice. And could he take a look at my feet? And so it wasn't a demand, it was a question. And he took a look at my feet, and, and he, I guess what he saw, he liked. And uh, that led to a foot massage. And then thereafter, for a series of months, it was foot massages until it did lead to more. And then more happened. And then once more happened, I couldn't understand what was going on because by that time, I needed to, I needed to run to someone. I needed to run for help. And yet, my world had devolved to a point where the only person I could run to for help was Graham himself. What a nightmare. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> nightmare is a good word to use because to this day I still have nightmares about it. And you carried the burden alone. You carried it through uh, school, your university career. You were a very high-achieving law student and a good goalie, hockey goalie, played for Princeton. Um, uh, was that a, just a lonely experience? Did Graham James consign you to living a, a lonely life until you finally said, uh, and I want to ask you about that, how that how that happened, how that evolved, but were you living a lonely life because of him until you finally said no more? Yeah. In many ways, I thought I'd 
uh, found an escape route when I had been admitted to Princeton. I applied to one university. It was Princeton. I went away, and I thought, there, I'm done with it. I'm away from him. But I, I found out something even worse about sexual abuse, and that's that having lost any sense of self-worth, having lost the ability to, to make any meaning about how did this happen, I mean, I, I went back to him over and over and over again, and, and uh, the outward success I was seemingly having didn't match the inward fraud and failure I knew I was, and I, I just, I, I didn't know how to be me anymore. I ceased to exist. I, I really did become nobody at all after the sexual abuse. At Princeton, I found that uh, Graham didn't need to be physically abusing me to still be abusing me because he'd made me into my own worst abuser. If I could succeed, you know, on, on the, the the hockey rink, at the hockey rink, on the hockey ice, if, if I could succeed in the classroom, it didn't register with me as real. So I would take immediate steps to self-sabotage and and, uh, and, and take any failure away. And so, yes, increasingly I, I ceased to be able to function in, in society with the, the the rest of people looking at me because I couldn't trust what they were seeing as being real. I couldn't trust what I was thinking about myself as being real. And time and time again, I would kill myself without killing myself until I finally got to the point where I spent a night on the bridge and and had to confront whether or not I was going to keep living. I'd been suicidal any number of, of times, but this was as close as I got. How old were you? Well, by this time, I'm in my 40s. Uh, I'm uh, a lawyer. Uh, I've I've had jobs at, at great law firms. I'm, I'm senior lawyer at a company. Uh, I am notionally still a success. Yet, you know, if if you wanted to dig a little more deeply into my past, you you would have seen the uh, passive aggressive cries for help without me ever formally crying out for help. And I'd like to believe that uh, I decided that enough was enough. And there certainly is a strong element of of me wanting to survive, of wanting to live. But the, the unfortunate truth that I, I carry with me to this day is, as much as I wanted to, to make this go away, I wanted to make myself go away. And I was fearful that I was going to be a failure at suicide, just like I'd blown myself up in any number of different uh, athletic and uh, professional circumstances. I was afraid that I was going to jump off the bridge, survive, but in a way incapacitated, so that I was unable to take my life on a go-forward basis, effectively sentenced to having to live as me, which would have been a fate worse than death. So there really was no Greg Gilhooley? Oh, no. I, I, I had ceased to exist pretty much from the moment the abuse started. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Greg Gilhooley is my guest. I Am Nobody is his book. And as you uh, you know, it's about... It's an experience of being sexually abused by Graham James, who um, is one of the most despised people in this country, and, and rightly so. Greg, uh, you were, again, let's come back to this. You were part of the charges against Graham James when the Theo Fleury abuse came to light. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I had... Uh reached my lowest uh, that night on the bridge and had decided that I was going to live for any number of reasons. Uh, and I was in the process of telling people I had uh, reached out and uh, was in therapy, had a medical doctor, had a psychologist, had a, a psychiatrist, and uh, was going about my personal recovery on an anonymous basis when uh, Theo came forward with his book. And the Winnipeg police uh, 
intru- introduced uh, exploratory measures to see whether there were other potential victims out there. And in the course of uh, their investigation, uh, I reached out to them and the Winnipeg police proceeded with charges uh, against Graham in respect of uh, Theo Fleury and two uh, other victims who at the time were anonymous, uh, me and uh, Todd Holt. And I had every intention of coming forward this time because when Sheldon Kennedy came forward back in 96, 97, I hadn't come forward and it had eaten at me and it, it, it put me through a, an absolutely disgusting suicidal spiral when I realized that I wasn't strong enough to come forward at that time. So when Theo came out with his book, I knew that I was going to have to become a part of a, a process no matter what it was going to do to uh, my own personal recovery. I was going to do it on a, an anonymous basis, but I knew that that was going to be difficult enough. And through the course of that uh, process, uh, the Winnipeg police encountered any number of uh, other victims. They went forward with charges in respect of the three of us. And Graham effectively sat back for over a year and uh, played back and forth with the Crown prosecutors as to what he was and wasn't willing to plead guilty to. In the end, deciding to plead guilty to charges in respect of Todd and Theo, but not me. So he was the puppet master. Even even then, he was trying to be the puppet master. Well, that's right, because if you think about it, you know, 30, now 40 years on, how do you ever prove you were sexually abused? You, the system is pretty much left uh, to the puppet master to decide what he's willing to plead guilty to or not. And the lawyer in me understood why the Crown was going to proceed the way that it did with Graham's lawyers. Uh, the victim in me was, you know, gutted. There are people oh, listening. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, what I wasn't prepared to do was let Graham have another victory over me. Uh, I was not going to to just go away silently. And, and when the Crown told me uh, its decision that it wanted to avoid a trial and it would accept the... Uh, arrangement where it would uh, go forward with uh, guilty pleas uh, in respect of Graham on two and not three. I, I just told the Crown, I said, well, that's fine. Uh, I have no problems releasing my name from the publicity ban and by all means make my name uh, public, uh, irrespective of the fact that Graham wasn't going to plead guilty to my charge. A lot of courage. Uh, that took a lot of courage, I'm sure, to do that. Uh, knowing what, you, what you've shared with us, what you faced, what would you... Um what is any adult listening now who has faced what you faced and been sexually abused as a child or a teen and has not spoken about it, is carrying it uh, internally, what's your fundamental advice to them? Is it possible to give advice? It's possible to give partial advice. Everyone is going to be different, and so I am loath to direct anyone to do anything specific because each and every circumstance will be different. But what I can say my experience has been is that no sense of closure or self-worth is going to come from any external source. No guilty plea or guilty verdict or apology from your uh, acu- your, your perpetrator is, is going, going to give you anything. It's going to have to come from within. And I would at all times remind everyone that we have uh, a legal result system. We don't have a justice system. Whatever, whatever sentence would be issued in respect of what happened to you uh, doesn't change what happened to you. 
And uh, it's just a, a, a game played by lawyers after the fact to determine who goes to jail for how long. It's, it's justice or no justice in respect of uh, the perpetrator. It has nothing to do with you and your recovery. In the end, I would say that having come forward has been the best thing that I've done, but it is by no means an easy process. And you got to make sure that you're ready to truly face what happened head on because you're going to have to revisit it and relive it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left here. Between 2 and 8% of minor age athletes are victims of sexual abuse within the context of sport. That's scary. That's a scary high number. It is. Greg, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I Am Nobody is the book, and uh, it's officially out today. And uh, perhaps we can call on you uh, to come back. Anytime uh, you want to give me a voice to talk about things like this, I'm more than happy to come on. Okay, thanks so much. You're very welcome. All the very best to you. Thanks. Greg Gilhooley, I Am Nobody is the title of the book. When we come back, it's going to be time for Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson, the Beauties and the Beast. We're going to be talking about a number of issues, including just briefly the budget, which is really about nothing, and a few other items and a soundbite for you. Stick around. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.